ChatGPT has been publicly available for just over a year, and its impact on our understanding and the discourse around AI and automation has been profound. The era where white-collar professionals could feel confident in the long-term security of their roles may have passed. Today feels like writing, programming, and notably for many of our listeners, various forms of design stand among the prime candidates for automation. The pace of change brought about by AI technologies can be overwhelming, and it's not just our jobs that are at stake. The technology stands to transform much of how our world works, including healthcare, banking, education, law enforcement, and transportation, fundamentally altering the way we live. The stakes are high. Addressing the challenge of ensuring that these changes are advantageous to those affected led us to consider legislative solutions. To delve deeper into this topic, we invited Kevin Kleiman, co-author of the Stanford article, Do Foundation Model Providers Comply with the Draft EU AI Act? Kevin's insights are particularly valuable in discussing AI regulation more broadly, and specifically how human-centric approaches can influence the shaping of such regulation. Welcome to Designing the Robot Revolution. This episode, AI legislation. The main objective should be human well-being, with Kevin Kleiman. A while back, we saw your article that you co-wrote and specifically the graphic that accompanied that article of the different AI LLMs and their compliance to the EU AI Act. We were having lots of conversations at the time, particularly around uh, copyright issues around the different language models. And also we noticed energy usage coming more and more people conscious about that. So to be able to use that graphic and bring it in front of people to facilitate the conversation was really useful. How did you come to be doing that research? How did that come about? The research project came up because there was a pervasive narrative that compliance with AI regulation, not just in Europe, but elsewhere, uh, is near impossible for companies. But if you read the documentation that most foundation model developers put out, uh, it's clear that they are trying for some sort of compliance. They disclose uh, a fair amount of information about their systems. And even on something as tricky as copyright, there are something like emerging best practices for how you might disclose information about what copyrighted information is used to build the model. So we, we thought it would be interesting just to do an initial analysis of the, of the draft law and see where companies stood. A lot of companies have changed their practices since. And so I think that it'll be interesting to see as the trilogue evolves, how companies continue to evolve their practices. Definitely. And we'll share a link to that article and that graphic in the show notes. But before we dive into the real substance of this, Kevin, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. So I'm a researcher at the Center for Research on Foundation Models, which is housed at the Institute for Human-Centered AI at Stanford. I'm also a technology policy researcher at Harvard's Belfer Center, where I focus on AI, geopolitics, and national security. And my background is in applied math from Berkeley. But in between studying at Berkeley and the research positions I hold now, I worked on AI policy at the UN and at the UN Foundation, uh, so focused on international regulation of artificial intelligence, developing risk assessments for AI systems, and having a focus on dangerous use cases, uh, especially associated with health in the pandemic. So the Institute for Human-Centered AI is a relatively new center at Stanford. It's been around for about five years. And the initiative believes that we should focus on the impact that artificial intelligence will have on people not just on the economy or on science, and it especially has a focus on how AI can improve the human condition, making sure that we can use this transformative technology to benefit people and not for other priorities. How would you describe human centricity in the context of AI? It's a matter of making sure that there are priorities on the table when making policy or designing a system or investing in uh, an AI company that are directly related to human impact. Uh, so many of those considerations are most likely to be for different performance metrics. Uh, so that could be a performance metric related to 
how long people spend interacting with the system. That's more of a social media metric or, uh, you know, whether or not a politician is reelected on the basis of uh, implementing a policy or whether or not a company is making money based on releasing a tool. We think that one of the objectives of each of these processes should be improving the general well-being of people. And that may mean delaying the release of a system. That might mean not using artificial intelligence for a particular application, or it might mean integrating it into a different system in a different way for a different objective. So this is often an unpleasant conversation for technology companies because their goal is to maximize profits uh, as a company. It can be an unpleasant conversation for uh, policymakers who want to make sure that they're seen as pro-innovation and pro-economy as much as possible. Uh, but the reality is that science might not be where, where they are. But I think that from my perspective, designers are often quite open to designing for a slightly different uh, you know, optimization function, you might say, uh, to say that if you're designing a user interface for a system, uh, that it's not just meant to be clean and intuitive and draw people in, but also supposed to promote the safety of the system. So, so in your work, have you come into contact with with companies for for profit companies, and and what what's their reaction to this line of thinking? Because I can imagine that this is not normally even something that is necessarily thought about actively. Like, how, how do you get into that? So, yes, I have interacted with for profit companies, and there are two sets of reactions. One is that companies are generally fairly receptive to these ideas. Many of them have implemented some of these ideas or hired people who have a focus on human centricity or responsible AI uh, or whatever other modality related to it. And so often they will be open to having a process related to these issues, or they will have the conversation and uh, will be constructive in the conversation. There's another issue of implementing recommendations, regulations, or the policies that their team recommends that they adopt. And there was a great paper out of some colleagues at Stanford recently called Walking the Walk of AI Ethics that studied uh, the experience of different AI ethics workers at various companies. And it found that they are rarely listened to, they are often marginalized within the company, and they do not get support from leadership in their efforts to push the company to consider ethics, fairness, transparency, or other factors that are, in my mind, very much tied to human centricity. Is that just based down to, to uh, for, for profit goals? Or is it is it too hard to understand it? Or, or why, why is this? There are, there are a number of different findings. Uh, one of them is related to for-profit goals. So the performance metrics that companies have are tied to the number of users of a product or how much money the product is making or other ingrained factors, uh, you know, the performance of a model compared to standard benchmarks. So moving away from those performance metrics to something like ethics that is difficult to quantify, that doesn't have well-established benchmarks is difficult. Um, and that, that, so that's somewhat of a cultural issue in addition to uh, a business profit incentive issue. Is your perspective that it might be fair to say that there is there are policy documents within corporations, but that actually getting them to be followed is the challenge? Or are we still at a stage where actually there's not even sufficient attention on this as a topic to, to have policy documents in place? It depends on which suite of corporations you're talking about. Corporations that mostly build and develop AI systems do have many policy documents and implementing those policy documents is a barrier as is being transparent about the ways that they implement those policy documents. So, but then there are many, many other corporations who now are on an urgent rush to hire someone with the title head of AI for, for the company. And 
they often lack relevant policy documents. They may be licensing AI system from a big company and their policy document tied to it might just be the contract. And they might just grandfather in AI policies from the other company, but the other company may not be very good at monitoring how strictly they adhere to those policies. So there's some question of how policies filter through the ecosystem. And this was very much the case with social media companies where social media companies did not have um, very comprehensive policies at first. They develop more comprehensive policies, but then they sell, share, and license their data uh, to many, many different actors. And it becomes unclear how their policies then apply slash how litigious they are uh, in enforcing their, those policies on third-party partners. Is this a an area of questions where, where companies can actually be trusted to have the right incentives? Or does this have to be policy from law rather than policy from, from the companies themselves? Like, how do we... How do we get to a state where we actually get this human centricity and, and, and people looking out for the, the, the users? It's always companies plus government. Um, even, even in sectors where the prevailing narrative is that companies are existing on a cloud far, far away from government, that there's no regulation, that's not the case. Every jurisdiction on the planet is fairly highly regulated when you look from a historical perspective. Regulation has increased by an enormous amount since, say, the 1950s. And so to be an entity in this world is to be regulated. As a starting point, many people say there exists no comprehensive AI regulation today. I think that that's a misreading of what exists. There are many data protection regulations that are enforced on AI companies. There are many consumer protection regulations that are enforced on AI companies. There are many regulations related to health, related to education, related to housing that are enforced on AI companies. So the status quo is a you know, co-evolution of the policies that companies have developed given existing legal environments. Can companies be trusted to be sufficient on their own? Of course not, uh, just as any company in any jurisdiction is motivated to make as much money as possible. There are some alternative corporate structures that mean that companies are not incentivized to make as much money as possible necessarily, but then you still have business people who are individually motivated to make as much money as possible. So there needs to be oversight from government. There needs to be oversight from international institutions. There needs to be oversight within the company and within the industry. And all of those are feasible given the right resources and the right talent. And that's a challenge. If, I, if, I'm, um, if I'm a designer or a, an executive um, at a company and I've been educated on this and I, I believe in the importance of this, but I want to understand how my organization, how well it's doing. Are there certain signals that can be identified or that I can look for to assess how we're doing? And if there are, or even if there aren't particular signals, what, what could I suggest that my management do or that my team do in order to be better? So are there signals that indicate a company is more or less mature? And what more can a company do to become more mature? It's very tricky because it's dependent on what the company does. So there, there are no general guidelines for you are a corporation, how do you do responsible AI well? Uh, or there are general guidelines and I, I think that they're insufficient. So the first step would be to just learn more about the topic. Uh, there's a, there are a lot of interesting resources that are provided, whether those are related to business and human rights uh, from business and human rights groups or related to industry bodies uh, that bring di various different organizations to the table, like the World Economic Forum or uh, the Partnership on AI. Learning more will give an executive or a designer great ideas about where to go. There are also interesting emerging best practices related to these issues that you could draw on. So you might look at, if not a company in your industry, 
than a company that's a critical provider for your industry. So if you use cloud services, then you're probably using either Google, Amazon, or Microsoft. They have a lot of documentation related to responsible AI, related to how you as an organization should responsibly use AI. That's a good starting point. In terms of how you're currently doing, it's a great fact-finding mission for you as an organization. You can ask your users, you can ask your clients, you can ask your teams, you can hold meetings maybe with an outside expert who would be willing to walk through some of the issues that are related to responsible use of autonomous systems. If you are a company that uses autonomous systems, the, the options for understanding how you're doing are there. Uh, because there are people who are interacting with those systems, there are people who are deploying those systems, and maybe not you as a company in particular, but one of your partners might be developing the system. And let's say I've gone and I've, I've, I've done this research, I've found out that actually my organization's not doing a very good job, it needs to be a lot better. And I'm struggling to get buy-in from other leaders about making this a priority. Again, it really depends on the use of the company. So let's say that the, the company is developing a healthcare chatbot and there's a certain series of topics that you might not want it to talk about. You might not want it to talk about, um, say, sexual health because it's giving a lot of misinformation. So I'm, I'm the executive that doesn't want the chatbot to talk about sexual health because it's giving a lot of misinformation. Then there are the other executives who say, well, if we cut off this topic, we might lose users because people are interested in coming to us for this information. I think there are a variety of points that are persuasive here, but to me, the key one is that using this tool for a use case that is not fit for purpose decreases the quality of our product. So if we have a really good reputation as having a reliable healthcare chatbot, and then many people come to us and receive misinformation, they may be pleased with the product experience at first, but when that misinformation comes around to bite, they'll realize that they got it from us and that will reduce our reputation. And that means that the quality of our product is down. And even if our metrics don't capture that, we have a higher level awareness of what is and isn't affecting user experience and product quality. How do you even start to define that positive outcome for a human in policymaking or as a company then trying to apply these this policy to actual problems in their business? As a policymaker, it's more simple. Uh, there just are established norms and metrics around how to protect people in marketplaces. So in the US, we have consumer protection standards that are revolve, that revolve around making sure that prices for consumers are not increased exorbitantly by companies. Similarly for housing, there are certain rates of increases in prices that can be set. So in the US, the price signal is above and beyond all else, but elsewhere companies have, or rather countries have a much greater focus on human rights, for instance, in their constitutions. And so stated principles for what it means to advance human well-being to me are a sufficient starting point. Now, when it comes to implementing that into AI policy, that often looks like appealing to established international principles for what, what it means to be responsible in developing and using AI. So for instance, UNESCO has laid out principles that all countries have agreed to as guiding principles for ethical AI. So if I'm a policymaker and I'm saying I have a specific goal of making sure that the housing market is not distorted by autonomous systems. Meta put out a recent, fairly recent report that's interesting on this, on how their algorithm was discriminating against people on the basis of race and what steps they took to reduce that discrimination. And that was out of their responsible AI team. So if I, if I want to say as a policymaker that I don't want algorithms to distort the housing market because we have this established goal of making prices not increase by so much, then I might look to a, doc a document like what UNESCO has laid out and said, well, what are the steps in a responsible AI process? I could make sure that the AI system is explainable. So if it is creating this bad outcome, then we're more likely to understand why. You could make sure that it is uh, narrowly tailored. So it's 
only meant to achieve a modular purpose. And therefore, uh, if it is causing this harm, it isn't causing spillover. You could make sure that there are pre-deployment risk assessments, which means that you might be able to anticipate the harm before it actually occurs. As a company, it's trickier, but that depends, again, on the breadth of the company. If the company is aiming to reach only a certain subset of consumers, that makes it easier because, again, there are certain best practices that already exist in those industries for companies that are not using autonomous systems for how to protect people in provision of goods and services. If you're building more general purpose AI systems, that's trickier. And so the companies that are building general purpose AI systems have laid out some guardrails for how to make sure that content that is machine generated, for its example, does not become a norm online and lead people to believe that it is in fact human generated. That's one of the main set of guardrails. Another would be related to making sure that systems are not used by bad actors. So having some sense of the prominence of the system, who is using the system, and something like a know your customer requirement is an emerging area here. I really, I just want to sort of tap back into what you said there uh, about the defined rules and the defined systems that we have for, for defining positive outcomes are there already for, for policy making. And I think that's something that is very easy to lose track of, but just because of the pace of the technology is so fast, you sort of assume that all the things connected to what we do with this technology also have to be brand new. But I think it's a good reminder that we can actually go back and look at regulation from other technologies. Have you any examples of any specific topic in policy where this has been followed, where we can see this line from what's already been there to what we have now when we've defined it through these uh, large language models and other systems that are, are popping up? With large language models, it's too new to have those uh, successful policy processes. I think a more successful example that is at least tied to it would be bringing in stakeholders who are not just companies or who are not just wealthy business executives. So for example, the UN's high-level panel on digital cooperation, which began in 2018 and presented its recommendations in 2020, including related to AI systems, whether their pre-deployment risk assessments or their use in specific industries uh, or military and geopolitical issues, that body explicitly had civil society as leaders of the initiative to make sure that interests, not just from industry or from government, uh, but from people and their representatives in a more organic way were there uh, from the start. A much worse example would be the recent meeting convened by Senate Majority Leader Schumer in the U.S., which included only a handful of representatives who were not CEOs, which is much more likely to lead to the concerns of CEOs being prioritized versus the concerns of everyday people. Have you, um, and, and as you said, it's early days for, for many of these questions, but have you seen any real-world examples of where overlooking uh, the human centricity has had adverse effects? Many. Uh, so one that I have done work on is on dangerous deployments of systems for certain use cases. So for example, people who are experiencing mental health crises who interact with chatbots are often not thought about because they are not the typical user. But if you were to design a system that took into account that people who are experiencing mental health crises might interact with the system, you would design it differently than you would design a chatbot that can answer any question. And so, for example, in, in the US, the National Eating Disorder Association released a chatbot in order to try and replace its staff. Its staff had recently unionized, it fired them all, it replaced them with a chatbot. And very quickly, people who were in crisis who are struggling with eating disorders, interacted with the chatbot, and it recommended that they do things that would further worsen their self-harm. Uh, this is an example where the humans were explicitly taken out of the loop because they were trying to uh, organize for their well-being, 
And I think we will see more and more of this where companies realize that in theory, uh, a tool that is commercially available for a very low price could replace grumpy workers and they will try to do so only to find out that the workers were actually doing quite a good job and that the system is not at all built uh, for that purpose. But with time, the systems will become more capable. And so it will become a murkier question versus today. It was immediately clear that there was a problem that people might die as a result of uh, the use of the system. I mean, that's a pretty extreme example because, as you said, people will probably die if they get the wrong help there with, uh, with, with advice. When it gets murkier, how do we design policy for that? Because you can never be 100% sure, right? And, and who, how do we distribute responsibility in those cases? That's a very open question. There will be harm, as with the deployment of any technology, and there, there will be benefits. Questions about how to distribute responsibility, to me, are relatively clear. The actors that are building and deploying the systems have the responsibility. The actors that provide data for the systems, uh, if they do so willingly, are responsible. And the downstream deployers, so it might not be just the company that develops the system, but also a company that licenses the system from them or that uses it in a, a tailored use case down the line. Each of these individuals hold responsibility or individual entities hold responsibility. By contrast, a lot of companies, a lot of uh, governments are eager to hold users responsible for misuse of the system. But that assumes a level of user education about the system and a level of design with the user in mind that does not exist in the status quo. Today, people are just learning about these systems. They're brand new. Uh, and I don't know if you read a 400-page terms of service when you sign up for a, a, a system, but I tend not to. I tend to click the scroll to the bottom and then sign uh, because I have limited time in, it, in a given day. So the idea that you or I would be held responsible for accidentally generating misinformation using a system, for example, uh, is ridiculous because we know the limitations of these systems fairly well as do the companies that are building and deploying them. But companies are very reluctant to take any responsibility because that quickly becomes an issue of whether or not it's possible to deploy a system. At the same time, the government has to take a fair amount of responsibility. If we believe that these large language models are transformative technologies that should in fact exist, it seems to be where we are today, then governments need to make sure that they are guiding the development of those systems and not just allowing them to develop in whatever way possible. And I think a lot of governments have recognized that. But I'm not saying that companies should be held liable for the outputs of their system, for example, because that would crush a lot of developers who don't have resources to handle the legal fees associated with that. I am saying that at an ethical or philosophical level, a company that develops and uses a system is responsible, not the person who they are providing the service to. I think that one is so hard just because of, and I, I'm hesitant to, to go into to large language models. I don't want to make that the entire focus of this, but it's, it's an example where we see huge amounts of output uh, that are prompted by users. Uh, and this is a discussion that me and David has had uh, multiple times. When is it my text to put on LinkedIn or whatever? Like, when have I made so much alteration to this text? And when have I taken so much responsibility for this text that I can confidently say that, yeah, I wrote this? Yeah, I would just say, obviously, there's a gradient of ethical responsibility for users. So if you are you know, generating book after book and tweaking every detail within it, you have some responsibility. And the companies certainly put plenty of responsibility on you with their policies. But 
you would not be able to use that tool if it was not released. So there is a prior question of uh, who, who built the tool. You may be building or you may be helping structure the way that people interact with the tool in the world because you are creating prompts and then distributing the text. I think it will become more complicated when it's not just a text-based modality, but you know, you are creating some sort of experience, whether that is music plus video plus text or some sort of more intricate game or whatever. But as it stands, you would not be able to create any of those LinkedIn posts unless the tool were released at the start. And so there is some question about release decision-making and transparency about that and accountability around that. So just so I get you right, essentially the companies could decide to put up more guardrails and take more responsibility. And that sort of shifts the gradient back again, uh, compared to what I was talking about, where the user might actually take some responsibility, but the company can always do more. Yep. Is that a correct reading? It of it? Yes, it depends on the business model, but you could think of it in three stages. So first, do you release or do you not release the system? So a company could choose to not release a system and then you would not be able to make your LinkedIn posts. Right. Then assuming you release a system, what guardrails do you build in? And this is not just a design question, but it's also a question of what's technically feasible given uh, your company structure, given how much monitoring you have over downstream use. And companies have taken a variety of different approaches. So very few companies, if ever, if any, release their base model, that is their model that has no adjustments for safety. Uh, whether through techniques like uh, safety fine tuning or reinforcement learning through human feedback, both of which are very popular at the moment. So they release models with a certain amount of safety, security, guardrails built in. So there's a question of, is that sufficient? Should they have done more? Uh, should they have delayed the release in order to do more? And then there's this third stage of the model is released, you're interacting with it. I still think that the company structures that to an enormous extent. So the company provides documentation for to guide you in how to do your prompting. They often give sample prompts. There is often a preamble that's attached onto your prompt. So it's not just your prompt that the company sees uh, it's or that the system sees. It's also uh, some sort of preamble paragraph. There's the user interface that uh, structures what you think of the system, what it's capable of doing that may uh, lead you to its policies or not lead you to its policies about what is and isn't acceptable. Then if, if you try to you know, use the system to generate child sexual abuse material, that, that's on you. But there are all of these things that happen uh, up until that point many of which could make that impossible for you to do. So you distinguished earlier on between the companies who make the underlying models, the underlying technology, and then the companies who are users of, of that. And as an outsider, my perception of speaking to you, speaking to experts, is that actually the companies who are making the underlying technology are very aware of these issues. There's a high level of awareness. They are taking the measures that you just described, the sort of measures that you just described there. Is that true or am I being too confident? Am I just reading the press releases and being made to feel at ease when actually I should be more worried? What's your take on that? I think you're being misled. Uh, companies take steps, but they're half measures at best. Uh, and hmm. if you do comprehensive analysis of the companies and what steps they take, you find that each of them do a fair amount. Uh, companies are not as irresponsible as you might be led to believe. More or less, all of them are developing uh, measures for safety, guardrails, policies, uh, some of which are effective, though they don't disclose how effective. But there's a whole host of other issues that you might want companies to do uh, where none take any steps related to that. For example, sharing information mm. about how their systems are used. 
sharing information related to how many users they have, what users do with the system, where users are based around the world, any measures for redress for users. These concerns around the impact of the system are something that no company wants to take on because if you provide a mechanism for redress, there's going to be a hell of a lot of redress that uh, users come for because hundreds of millions of people are using large language models today. And when hundreds of millions of people do anything, there's going to be harm. Uh, so at minimum, even if you assume the companies are doing the best thing in the world that is transforming science and the economy, they are causing harm. Hmm. And there is no way for a user to uh, get accountability for this harm. So as a baseline, those are some areas where companies are doing nothing. No company does anything. Uh, but there's much more that companies should be doing. And I like the press releases. They have good design teams. Uh, I think they make me feel like the companies are paying attention, but also pay attention to the press releases they put out when governments threaten to regulate them. And those press releases are much less friendly. And in the fine print, they say, we will comply with this regulation to the minimum standard. So hmm. even if we think we should be regulated, we will only do what you require us to do. We will not go further. And if, if requirements are too severe, they will fight them tooth and nail. That's why many data protection regulators are suing the companies. On that, with, with the consequences for, for misbehaving when you're a company that does this type of work, how, how do we ensure that it's it's followed? What what strategies can we we take there? And uh, I mean, yeah, we, we, we can find them and, and to an extent, maybe even outlaw things. But what strategies can we as a society take to, uh, to address? As a society, we have many, many different levers for holding companies accountable. So there is pressure on companies, which may lead them to develop some of these policies and guardrails. I think that public pressure, as well as pressure from researchers, is accountable for a substantial amount of the progress that we've seen so far. There is pressuring government uh, and making sure that government has some say in the development of the technology, or at least the direction that the technology goes in and the pace at which it proceeds. And then there is collective action. If your community is being affected by a system in a particular way, the most effective way to change that is to reach out to your community, see if it is affecting a broad swath of people. If so, do the standard community organizing techniques that have worked for all of history. So write some letters, knock on doors, talk to people, make your voice heard. The standard methodologies here will be effective. The, the difficulty is scale. So making sure that hmm. your concerns are concerns of someone somewhere else in the world and then linking up with them because things are moving so quickly that I, I do worry that um, some bad practices will be cemented uh, before we reach a system that is of a really significant capability. Um, so there are already very, very capable systems, but if there are systems that are self-improving, uh, that's one additional breakthrough. When we wait another year or two, and there are many, many more multimodal models that can take in one input and output another that seems to increase capabilities uh, or can increase capabilities from a user perspective, at least significantly. If companies have not changed their practices drastically uh, before those kinds of systems are used at a very wide scale, then we're in a bad place. Advocating for you know your community's needs to be met and for any harms that are happening to be stopped is is quite urgent, which is why there's this imbalance that I perceive now where we're in a pretty risky place. It's very interesting. I haven't thought of that. The the distributed nature of communities that might be affected of a problem makes it very hard to organize around uh, one specific topic because it can feel like I am the only one with this problem. But as you said, there are 100 million users. Likelihood of me having a, a unique problem is quite low, right? 
Awareness is such a problem, though, isn't it? That people, for people actually to realise this and become aware in order to take that action. Yeah, especially since you're, you're, the problem is around a product and the company that has that product isn't at all incentivized to connect the people that have issues with that project product. Uh, so if I share that with someone in Kuala Lumpur and someone in Denmark, maybe we, we're not going to necessarily find each other. Though there are some forums, especially for developers who use the tools. So for example, Hugging Face has a discussions tab. So many, many, many large language models are hosted on Hug Hugging Face. And if you're having an issue, you can make a post there and someone is likely to respond. It's a very active community. Um, similarly on GitHub, uh, if a model is hosted on GitHub, you can submit an issue and that may, may or may not be resolved. There are some of these mm -hmm. forums and some companies have created, um, you know, FAQ pages that then sprawl out into big, uh, question answering threads. Um, some companies have created discord communities. There are some of these baby steps towards feedback but those are company moderated steps. And so inherently right. limited. What I more would want to see is a government and civil society led effort where let's say a data protection regulator who is experiencing issues with some of these systems, they're probably more aware of the national level issues tied to this to, to the system because they have mechanisms for receiving complaints. If data protection regulators then engage civil society and said, we want to know how your communities are using these tools and how these tools are harming your communities. So we can make sure that those mm. issues are represented in any regulation that we put forward and in any litigation that we bring against companies. That would be a very interesting kind of fact finding that I consider to be very different from how some regulation is made. Often regulation is made by technocrats and then it is released for comment and you can issue comment uh, if you'd like. If you don't issue comment, then it proceeds as is. And the entities that issue comments are companies because they have money for legal teams and they understand uh, what kind of comments are likely to be taken and hmm. they know the regulators. And so they know they can get a meeting after they submit a comment, uh, relatively few, you know, community-based civil society groups are engaging in regulatory processes at that level. My view is that because the regulatory processes are so critical, it's an obligation of government entities to not just be representing the government's interest, but to be representing the interests of specific communities uh, in, in that process. So there are ways that more national bodies can coordinate uh, and can provide forums. There is also a question of how to do it in a distributed way, whether on social media or whether in person and having, you know, hmm kind of narrower links from community to community. Uh, so for example, I was living in New York City before. If my community is people who are paying too much for housing in New York City, that's a very large community. That is uh, large enough to have an impact, especially because New York City is a very wealthy area. And so people are more likely to listen to wealthy residents hmm. in New York City, even if they're paying too much for housing. If my community are... Uh, you know, women garment workers in a very small town somewhere in r the rural U.S., much less likely to get a meeting with an executive at OpenAI. Mm. Right. It is funny in a sense that one of the technologies that can actually help create something like this would be uh, systems like AI that could sift through huge amount amounts of, of data on complaints and concerns. And uh, so th there seems to me to be a, a positive outcomes that could come from the technology itself there. In theory, yes, but you do not need AI for that. Um, so, I mean, it again, it depends on 
how you draw the scope of the definition, but in order to sift through complaints, you need just a much more simple tool that can sort uh, on the basis of similarity of the words, which does not require AI. If you wanted to, of course, AI could be helpful, but you know, search algorithms are much stupider than AI and we understand them much better. To me, there's a, there's a distinction between areas where AI can be helpful because it is the only thing that can help areas where AI can be helpful because it is the best thing that we know of that can be helpful. And then areas where we're curious about how AI might work, but we have existing tools that are quite effective. I see a lot of activity in the third category. Uh, and that concerns me because that means that using AI as an interesting application somewhere is often trading off with an existing effective solution. It doesn't have to trade off if there are sufficient resources, but the resources are more likely to go towards an AI application or integration than towards, say, a non-machine learning-based integration or even just a human performing the task. Can you see that in society, uh, are there parts where there is a lot of progress in this, where, is there, where, where we get a lot of good regulation, uh, like education, industry? Specifically applied to AI too early, um, it depends on your jurisdiction. I think there are many jurisdictions that have somewhat effective regulations of the financial sector, for example. There is a lot of reporting requirements, mm. We tend to know if something is going wrong at financial firms. Uh, it's just confusing for, for lay people to track. And there's often not a lot of enforcement uh, when something is going wrong. Another would be airline safety. Aircraft have improved significantly in terms of safety in recent years. And that's in no small part due to regulation, uh, requirements of testing, auditing, et cetera. So there are, there are areas of technology that an industry that where regulation is quite effective. Uh, I think food safety is another where hmm. generally you're confident that if you're buying something from the grocery store, you're not going to die or be poisoned by what's at the grocery store. That's very different right. than in a pre-regulation world. If you were to be having like the, the alarm flashing lights on which parts, which industries do we really need to put this attention on? And maybe actually a kind of secondary part to that question is maybe there are some less obvious ones, like that we there have big risks, but we're not paying. So, Yeah, I think, so when it comes to the integration of AI with specific industries, if you just look at the policies that companies have put out, it reveals where they think the risks are. So if you take Anthropic, for a while, its policy included restricted business use cases. It no longer does. Uh, it has a different term for it. But those restricted business use cases are things like weapons development or high-impact decision-making over whether or not someone receives care or whether or not someone is allowed to immigrate into a country or whether or not someone is prioritized in a queue that determines life or death. There's also a whole host of issues related to fraud. Um, so multi-level marketing schemes would be very happy to use these tools. Scammers, whether mm. over the phone or email, et cetera. Really risky decisions, really high risk industries, and then illegal activity are three areas where at least companies are putting a lot of attention on making sure that applications are limited. As I've said earlier, I think healthcare is a big one. For example, using these systems in therapy, there's no evidence uh, for doing this. Doing so is quite dangerous. There are very few restrictions on that because there is an idea that it is better to provide people with care that is of low quality or that is dangerous or potentially uh, risky than to have people not receive care. But this is a, a false dichotomy where 
You can provide mm. people with care. It just requires resources. If you direct those resources towards AI therapists, then that's fewer resources that you have to provide people with care. Aside from healthcare, I think issues of economic justice are very much at the forefront. There's already a lot of economic precarity, uh, whether in the wake of a COVID recovery that has not reached most people, or even in the wake of the 2008 uh, global financial crisis. The idea that the best way to alleviate economic suffering in the wake of these global economic shocks is artificial intelligence is, it just doesn't make sense at, at a baseline level. These are, you know, global macroeconomic conditions that the use of today's artificial intelligence tools cannot address. So whether that comes to issues of housing mm -hmm. security, issues of food insecurity, access to government services, we have established success stories there. We should rely on those success stories. If systems become more capable, if they're tried out in a modular way, if people consent to the use of those systems, then we can talk about integrating those systems into those critical aspects of economic justice. But previous digital technologies have severely undermined economic mobility for a wide range of people. So we should be extremely cautious uh, when we hear, well, if we design the system just right, then it would help people access housing. That is not how social media worked. Mm. That is not necessarily how the internet worked in a lot of jurisdictions. So we have to think carefully about the historical analogs and where harms and benefits were distributed. So Kevin, thank you very much for uh, spending the time with us. We really appreciate it. If people want to get in touch with you or find out more, what's the best way to find out what you're working on? You can follow me on Twitter uh, at Kevin underscore Kleiman or on LinkedIn, Kevin Kleiman. Yeah, happy to, happy to talk with people, happy to share more about my research. And thanks for having me on, Jacob and David. Having Kevin on was a blast and we learned so much. And speaking of that, we've had a really good year with tons and tons of great guests with so many new insights. We're now going into the new year and we're going to change up our formats a little bit. If you have any suggestions for us, if you have any ideas or things that you want us to look into, please reach out to us and tell us what you think we should be doing. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to Designing the Robot Revolution.